Welcome to A Better HR Business, the podcast that looks at how HR consultants and HR tech firms grow their businesses and how they help their employers to get the best out of their people. Remember, for show notes and downloads, go to www.getmorehrclients.com forward slash podcast. That's getmorehrclients.com forward slash podcast. Okay, let's get started. Hello, welcome back. Thanks for joining me today. Great to have you along. And I'm really looking forward to today's conversation with Mark Gray. Mark is head of hiring at a very cool company called Invisible Technologies. And Invisible provides tech-enabled next-gen outsourcing services to scale up operations or cut costs and support customers' teams. So it's very cool and a wide variety or range of options in the way it can be used. So to dive into that, Mark, firstly, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great to have you. And whereabouts are you calling in from? I am currently based in Copenhagen in Denmark. Oh, lovely. That's Lego land, isn't it? Lego territory? It is. It's Lego territory, Maersk territory. What else have the Danes accomplished? Yeah, I live in Ireland, so, you know, we can't mention the Danes here. You know, people get scared of being invaded again (laughs) by the Vikings. They've changed. Yeah, okay. Okay. A lot more passive. Very good. Tell me, what is Invisible Technologies all about? Yeah, it's arguably the most contrarian business I've worked for. Uh, probably the most contrarian business I know of. The interaction between, you know, the standard employee-employer relationship is definitely a far-flung concept here. You know, we imbue a partnership mentality. Everyone owns a part of the business, and even the way the equity is granted is different. The way pay is done is different. But from what the business actually does is how can we utilize a global labor force in our platform to do rote and inefficient tasks for our clients in a much more cost-efficient, quicker, and optimized way. So we'll talk to any company and any vertical in any sector, take a process, big or small, we'll build that process out in our platform. We'll automate as much as we can through our platform. We are technological realists, so we recognize that we still need humans to do a lot of this work, or some of this work, I should say. And then we utilize a global labor force. I think we have agents in 102 countries right now working remotely for us. So yeah, we're the future, hopefully, of how businesses conduct themselves and grow and scale and improve their margins and profits. And now I know you're got a bit of an interest in looking at the automation or the, I don't know, machine learning and data, and maybe even the AI, artificial intelligence side of things for recruitment. So now I need to read my notes here because I believe you've been researching the deployability of observed personality traits and the utility in predicting future job performance. Now, how would a normal person say that at the pub? Yeah, that's the problem with their scientific uh, research. They never have how to find good salespeople easy. But yeah, essentially it's trying to, you know, hiring as a function hasn't really changed over the last 20 years. You know, probably one of the biggest game changers in recruitment was like the fax machine. You know, all of a sudden you could send your CV, but the way that companies view talent hasn't inherently changed. So what we set out to do was understand, well, is there any clear correlation between performance at a very specific domain with a very clear tangible output, which is, you know, sales and how those personality traits aid themselves to that performance. 
And then we did some other kind of subtasks, you know, the old adage of, oh, we want to hire salespeople. They must have worked in a software company before. They must have worked in tech. And we actually, we found that uh, that doesn't hold true. In fact, there's a negative correlation. So we worked on this model. We figured out what that looked like. And I actually applied it both in my previous company, where we were very constrained by budget, and now here at Invisible. And I guess you could say it's the money ball approach to hiring. How can you identify talent beyond what's on their CV or where they studied or which companies they used to work for? So then that begs the question, how do you identify this hidden streams of talent? There's a few factors involved, a combination of kind of historic IO psychology and some social sciences. You know, there's some pretty well-documented predictive metrics on recognizing if someone will be good at their job. Firstly, it's understanding the complexity. So, you know, one of the old mentalities is like, okay, IQ is a great predictor of job performance. Well, yes and no, because if the role is low complexity, you'll learn that quickly but obviously it won't actually have an impact on how well you perform the role. So the big five traits, which is kind of the basis for modern day psychology, is where most of the research is conducted for. So we look at some of the main factors that prove to be highly predictable in sales is one is openness, and there's like five sub-factors within openness that I won't get into now, but in its most basic form, it's linked to creativity, how good they are at taking in new information. And this is me very much oversimplifying it. And the other one is conscientiousness. Once again, there's five sub-factors, but within conscientiousness, if I was to throw a hat on it in its simplest form is how organized and hardworking are they? I'm glossing over how complex this actually is. Mm-hmm. And those key traits were highly predictable of high-performing salespeople. And to the contrary, naturally, people that were highly neurotic, so scoring highly on neuroticism, was a trait of poor performance. Although that doesn't apply in every business because, you know, different sales cultures, different organizational cultures, different team dynamics, all of these things factor in ultimately to how a individual performs. So I'd recommend naturally company benchmark their own people and go, well, what makes our best people our best people at a very deep level from a big five perspective, from a task utility perspective? How does that feed into team dynamics as a whole? And then you can start kind of replicating that model across the business. Yeah, I was wondering that. How do you apply the learnings of this to your own organization, wherever that may be, because every organization is different. And I suspect that senior managers in some cases might go with gut feel look we're a very fluid organization you know we're light on our feet which is a way of saying we're disorganized and haven't got any plans so how do they plan out and get data to actually formally say this is what we are and this is what we should look for yeah so i think the path of least resistance is any function with clear tangible output and that's once again why we pick sales it's very easy to measure the success of the salesperson so if you have a sales team of 100 people who are your top 10 performers, then, you know, there's a difference between perceived and observed traits. So anyone that's done a personality test and, you know, multiple choice questions and you're filling it out, that's your perceived traits. It's what you think of yourself. So, you know, naturally, if you ask a group of 100 strangers, hey, you see a random person on the street getting robbed, would you A, step in and fight off the assailants or B, run and call the police? 
most people would say, yeah, I'd go in and fight the assailant. But the reality is most people would probably run off and call the police. So that's one of the issues with kind of perceived traits. And then observed traits are, if you were to ask a sample of a thousand people what they believed your traits were, that would be the outcome. And then you can get into some debate as to what's the validity of both. But in this case, the kind of key factor is once you have that baseline, you then run these people through any form of testing you choose. I personally use a, a German company called Rittorio, which is able to pull a large sample of data from like a two-minute video recording in their platform. You then do a kind of a standard deviation of seeing, okay, well, what's the effect on one on the other and one on all of them? And then you'll be able to get a pretty clear picture as to, okay, well, typically our salespeople are high in X if they're a top performer. Typically they're low in Y if they're a low performer. And you can start building out a pretty comprehensive picture as to what success looks like within your organization with certain traits and certain task utility. Nice. And in the sales example, you said that someone scoring low on neuroticism wouldn't necessarily be a great performer or the best performer. Are there any roles or types where someone who scores highly on neuroticism would do well? Yeah, definitely. I think roles that require a high degree of empathy, being neurotic is actually a benefit because your, you know, your ability to connect you know, there's naturally a disconnect between neuroticism and emotional intelligence, but there's some variability that can be factored in. But the individuals that are highly neurotic, you know, and need to be highly neurotic to, you know, do their function well, you know, there's a place for them. And I think looking at the talent market as a whole, let's say, you know, that's a pretty big market. You know, the global talent market is hyper inefficient. I think in the U.S. alone, it's a mind-boggling number. Like it costs the U.S. economy $400 billion a year because it's wow. so inefficient. So imagine we were able to go, hey, look, you're pretty neurotic. So like, we'd recommend that you don't do these types of jobs, but these types of jobs, you'll actually not only be happy, but you'll also be like really successful at them and you know how efficient the market could be. And once again... The market is such a broad term, but like yeah. that's my point is imagine we could get better and beyond the CV of what people are good and potentially not good at. I like that. I like that. And you see in the movies, the not the dystopian things, but almost grayscale movies, trudging off to work on the train in the morning and trudging back and they hate their job and you know maybe clerks or something like that yeah if people knew what they were good at and did something that they enjoyed and could excel at it then there's pride and a bit more enjoyment around all of that it must surely affect national happiness if you can measure that yeah there's probably an element of like self-determination theory in there as well but uh i think there's so much scope for improvement and it's one of these weird things where it's like you know something that most people commit 40 hours a week of their life to and we're still like really bad at understanding if a person's good at the thing we want to bring them in for, or if that person would be happy, whether that be the job itself or the, the culture or their colleagues, or we're still very much trapped in the Bronze Ages in terms of hiring. I love it. And then for invisible technologies, it's sort of on the outsourcing, tech-enabled next-gen outsourcing is, is what I say. On the website you can go in and look at different ways it can be used. Is that right? So there are different processes that almost people can pick and choose from. Is that accurate? For sure, yeah. Yeah, so like we're a hybrid between, let's say, Amazon's Mechanical Turk yeah, yeah. and a, a standard BPO. So like a BPO is service only, 
and uh, a mechanical Turk is software only. And we're a hybrid of the two, whereby, you know, as you said, you can go and pick some processes off the shelf. We have a team of people that will help customize it in whatever way you see fit, or you can build a brand new process. I know uh, customization is a dirty word in the SaaS space, but uh, we're all open to it. And, yeah. You know, we do a lot of customization. I'm thinking of a project once we did where, you know, on a, let's say on a website, people fill in a form and then there's that box, how did you hear about us? Hmm. And you could have a drop down menu, but it's not always the same thing. It's not always, I heard from Google. What does Google mean? Did you type something in or was it an ad or something else? Hmm. You know, there are a hundred or thousand different ways that someone could have heard about you. And so what we're doing is, well, is there a way of doing machine learning to narrow that down and sort of either get categories and things like that? But yes, it works eventually to get that machine learning, which is great because it means you can reallocate budget for marketing and all that kind of stuff. But at the start, you need human eyes looking at it and categorizing it and thinking about it. So that sounds like the kind of thing that's a hybrid model. Is that right? Yeah. So it can be. And, you know, this is the scale of like what we can do. It's like, you know, on the one hand, we have clients that use us for marketing. It's like, hey, we need you to assist us in image scraping so that we can understand the best way to build out some of our SEO campaigns. Yep, off we go. We have, you know, clients where we're building their neural network for their AI product. We have clients where we're doing very simple kind of email scraping. You know, it, it really rage. It's like, the kind of the options you have are, okay, you can hire a human to do this in your country, or you can utilize us and we can scale up and down as you need or see fit. So getting into too many specifics, we had one client that had a huge backlog of work that needed to be done. And their proposal was, right, we'll hire 800 people to fix this. Roughly, that was going to cost them 25 million a year. You know, you have to hire 800 people. So that's the HR team, recruitment team, finance, accounting, payroll, an office, equipment, onboarding, uh, and, you know, all those 800 don't start at once. Our solution was, well, let's build this process out. It's going to cost you a tenth of what you're going to pay. And we can do it three times faster because we're in 102 countries. So we're in every time zone. So, you know, when New Zealand goes offline, well, Brazil comes online. Brazil goes offline, Nigeria comes online, and so on and so forth. So what they proposed would take 10 months realistically at $25 million a year took them two and a half million dollars and took them two and a half months. And then once that backlog was cleared, they scaled down the amount of agents they needed and we moved those agents into other projects and then they're at stable line. You know, if there's a spike, that's fine. We can reallocate the agents to that project. And that's kind of a high level of what we do and how we do it. That's a very cool example. I love it. I love it. Now, on this podcast, I'm often very interested in the business growth and the marketing side of things, because that's all we do. We do marketing for HR-related companies. But I'd love to ask you about something slightly different, and it's around almost product market fit. And I think you guys have a very cool way of working out how you could extend the use of your services, because realistically, you've got software and people, the hybrid model, you could do anything, anything in this world. So it's trying to work out what to focus on. And then as you get some wins and some customers, clients happy and, and work flowing through, that how do you then expand that into the other processes? So can you explain how you go about working out what to work on next and whether that's the right thing to do? Sure. So 
part of it is a combination of how we approach, let's say, sales or growth. So we're very surgical in how we approach markets because our platform and our product can be utilized in pretty much any company. That's, you know, on the one hand, amazing in terms of total addressable market. But on the other hand, it's like very tricky because you're like, where's the starting point? Mm -hmm. So the way we kind of formulate our approach is we go in with a hypothesis. We have people in the organization and that's their focus. They're, you know, opportunity truffle hunters. They go, this is my belief. Here's my hypothesis. Let's go test it. And the way we go test it is we'll go to very specific conferences that are industry specific. And we'll start talking to people and go, hey, you know, we believe X, Y, and Z. How true are those statements? Are there any gray areas we're missing? And we'll come back and go either, yep, that holds true, or no, we were off. We need to kind of pivot a bit more. And then we'll go out to that market. And the beauty of our product and approach is, you know, going back to that example, that client in question became a lighthouse client. And we went to their competitors and go, hey, we just saved your biggest competitor $22.5 million a year. Do you want to talk? And most of them do. In fact, that specific vertical, we've got 85% of the global, of the biggest players in the globe currently working with us because of that one example. So conferences have been a huge part in testing our hypothesis, but then expanding on it and then bringing in more clients based off of that. Very cool. I have to get nerdy or practical or, tac- or tactical, sorry. The conference itself, do you just stand around in white lab coats with clipboards and corral people? How do you ask them these questions? Yeah, we also bring a few Bunsen burners. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, so we'll, we usually kind of, I want to say it's a hybrid of kind of guerrilla conferencing, you know, if that is such a thing. Um <laughs> And just showing up and planting our flag at the conference. You know, a lot of these industry-specific events, most of the time, it's players in that industry, especially the niche ones. So when they see a tech company there, there's a natural kind of gravitation to like, who are you guys? Why are you here? But like, I think to give you a great example, I think we went to one conference, which was fairly niche. And I think we're talking maybe... Four or $5,000 to have a stand there. We ended up leaving that conference with over 200 leads, 22 of which have already converted. And that was four months ago. So we're doing something right. I don't, it's like the secret sauce. It's, you know, when you taste something, you're like, there's a certain umami in there. I just need to figure it out. So <laughs> now we're trying to understand that deeper. It's like, okay, what of our approach seems to be working in conference X, Y, and Z? but not working as well as ABC. Is it size? Is it the industry? Is it our approach? Is it all these minutiae that we've done in the past? And now we're kind of refactoring our approach uh, across all conferences. And it's essentially the cornerstone for next year of our lead generation efforts in our marketing. Okay, that's fantastic. Because a lot of companies go to these big events and fail to get any leads at all or any interest. They spend thousands of dollars on an expensive stand and, and just come away regretting the experience but yeah it's interesting that you're analyzing what worked or what didn't or at least thinking about it and trying to find the better way i had a little flashback to when i was a kid and we were given a box of chocolates we had to sell for fundraising for whatever school thing and so when you're selling a volume of chocolates the script kept changing you know i realized if i said this thing it would work whereas if i started with something else it didn't work and so that was opening my eyes to the worlds of scripts and things but 
it's the same with conferences. There's certain phrases I've always used at conferences that will get an email address versus won't. You know, yeah. the classic, hey, I can tell you all about it for the next 30 minutes, or do you want me to just send you some information? Oh, yes, send me some information. Okay, what's your name and email address? And you always get it. But the other thing is you mentioned niche conferences. What do you mean yeah. by that? Because from the HR perspective, most people would say, oh, I'm going to go off to Unleash, which is a big yeah. HR industry event. But I think you're not talking about the big sector thing. You're talking about subcategories and not even anything to do with HR or SaaS or technology. Am I right? Yeah, we'll still go to the big ones. You know, we'll go to the web summits of the world. We're an ROI-driven business. So even when anyone at the business wants to make a hire, they have to present a ROI case to me and our CEO and our finance director. Go, this is why we're hiring this person. The same mentality applies to when we go to conference. Say, like, cool, we will spend X amount of thousands of dollars, but we need to track the output of that. What does that lead to? And I know some things are harder. You know, it's really hard to put a value on branding. Although if anyone's read Helmer's Seven Powers, which I highly recommend you do, branding is one of the powers. And essentially, if your business has one of the seven powers, you're winning. If you have three or four, you're dominating. If you have all seven, you're a monopoly. <laughs> it's very interesting. Not the easiest read in the world. Um, <laughs> and there's some heavy algebra in there, but very fascinating insight into why some of the most successful companies are the most successful companies. So branding, very hard to kind of nail down a number on, but in terms of output, so yeah. And the events themselves, like how do you choose which events to go to? We will, so let's say HR, for example. HR has many conferences. And then you go, okay, within HR, there's probably some very niche conferences. So there's niche conferences just for employment branding. There's conferences just for HR compliance, you know, and you go to these kind of substratas of conferences as opposed to the big giant ones where, you know, you're competing for airtime, for lack of better words, with other businesses. So if we want to go into the insurance industry, we'll go, okay, well, there's probably an insurance conference that's dedicated to the automobile sector. Let's go there because then we can target the insurance companies, but we can also target the automotive manufacturers. We can also target the safety regulators. We can also, so that's how we kind of go in with a hypothesis and then try to poke around and see if it holds true. So to summarize that, you're saying your aim is you want to look weird. You want conference attendees to walk around and go, who are they? What are they doing here? You kind of want to stand out of it because you've chosen something a little bit more niche where you would not be expected to be. And then they can actually curious to learn about how you could help them i, I yeah, joke but it's kind of along those lines you know it's i think it's like some of it's sticking on your feet you know i think recently our, our marketing director and our coo went to a conference in new york and it was a fairly small one and they went to buy a coffee and they're like, oh yeah, there's no there's no coffee at the conference so our marketing director called you know a, a coffee company we're like hey can you bring a mobile coffee you know little like tuk tuk to this conference and they're like sure it'll be you know five thousand dollars she's like yep yeah, bring it so they went there they got all the coffee cups they slapped invisible stickers on them and started handing out coffee to people nice. and you know it's that type of quick on your feet kind of guerrilla marketing to an extent but then people go who are these invisible people and why are they giving out free coffee and you know did we make back that five thousand dollars a hundred percent it's little tricks like that i love it i love it so finally what do you see as being the future of the world of work and HR and, and how invisible technologies fits into that? Yeah. One of the amazing things that 
invisible is done. And what very few companies seem to do is you keep hearing this phrase like the war on talent. And you're like, okay, sure. You know, companies in the war talent, isn't it? War. No, sorry, yeah. <laughs> Let's not declare war on talent just yet. That's the yeah. machines talking. <laughs> exactly. And a lot of companies, it's very like location specific. So, you know, the Bay Area is a tough place. I know Dublin itself is also yeah. very competitive, but you know, we've got hundreds of millions of people globally that are very capable of doing the work that we require them to do. So I think that's one kind of caveat that companies need to start factoring in. The second is, and you know, one of the basis of why Invisible became what it is, is that a lot of people spend time on work that isn't really productive. You know, they're doing admin tasks, back office tasks, BS work. And it's like, imagine Invisible can come in, take away all of that work, so you can focus on high output, creative work, which is why, you know, person X in San Francisco is getting paid the salary they're getting paid, that they're very smart, they're very creative, they're very well educated, whatever the blanket terms you want to use, let them focus on the stuff that's really impactful and not, you know, filling out a spreadsheet. And I think that's how Invisible is really going to affect the future of work is let them spend less time doing the things that are not as meaningful and also by virtue of being more creative and having a higher output, spend more time with their family and their friends. You know, people shouldn't be spending 60 hours a week fixing Excel sheets or filling in order forms. They should be doing work that's meaningful to them and actually makes them feel like they're contributing something that isn't admin heavy. Yeah. yeah. It's like the sales example you gave earlier that the top half of sales performers, I'm sure they will be very organized, I'm guessing, but I'm sure they don't spend most of their day doing admin and filing papers and requests. It's either streamlined or they've managed to get rid of it, or they've just allocated a time and they just power through it and get back to the job of finding winning sales. So exactly. Yeah, let them play exactly. to their strengths. Can you call out the website of Invisible just so listeners can go check you guys out? Sure. The website is invisible.co. And what can they find there? Because I know there's some pretty cool stuff there. All of our dark secrets are on our website. <laughs> uh, anything from how our product works, our partner pay model, all of this is transparent. Everyone knows what everyone gets paid. Some of our blog posts, which are really interesting. You'll also see some demos and some of our use cases on how we've helped other businesses, you know, really scale the ops side of their business. Excellent. So yeah, invisible.co. In that case, Mark, that's fascinating. And yeah, I think you guys have just gone from strength to strength. So congratulations and thank you for sharing the story so far. And I wish you all the best with it. Thank you very much, Ben. Thanks again for having me on. Thanks for joining us today on A Better HR Business, the podcast that explores the world of HR consulting and HR tech businesses. For show notes and downloads, go to www.getmorehrclients.com forward slash podcast. That's getmorehrclients.com forward slash podcast. Remember to subscribe and share the show with any friends who are busy growing a HR business. Thanks and see you next time.